This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And when you're researching history, as we often do, of course, it can get difficult sometimes to distinguish between mere legend and fact. Mad Trapper. Exactly. And that's why you'll often hear us say things like sources disagree or offer up two possible versions of events rather than just giving you one. Sometimes this simply comes down to how sources have come by their information. Did they use primary sources or things like newspaper articles and other publications as their sources? Other times, myths originate with people close to the subject. And sometimes, as we saw with Frida Kahlo advertising her own birth date as being three years later than it actually was, the discrepancies actually originate with the subjects themselves. Who can you trust? Who can you trust? Regardless of how these come about, though, perhaps nowhere are these sorts of discrepancies more apparent than they are with the story of Belle Starr, a notorious 19th century outlaw of America's Wild West. At least that's how people think of her, though. Descriptions of Belle Starr from so-called biographies and contemporary newspaper accounts, and more recently in pop culture, paint her as a bandit queen, this beautiful leader of a band of outlaws who held up stagecoaches, cleaned out crooked poker games, six shooters smoking at her sides, and spent all of her free time in saloons hanging out with shady characters. It's quite a romantic picture. But more recent accounts of Belle's life contradict a lot of these points and suggest that while Belle was certainly no saint, she also wasn't necessarily the female Jesse James, as some sources made her out to be. In fact, she might have been a devoted wife, a loving mother, and a pretty good neighbor. At times, she might have been even law-abiding. Church going. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at Belle Starr's life and try to get at her real story, or as close as possible, and also examine why she got her wild outlaw reputation in the first place. She was born Myra Maybell Shirley on February 5th, 1848, and her father, John Shirley, had been kind of a black sheep of a wealthy Virginia family. He moved around a lot, and he was married and divorced twice before meeting and marrying Eliza Pennington, who was a Hatfield of Hatfield and McCoy fame. The couple settled initially in southern Missouri. 
So John Shirley started out farming in that area to make a living, and Myra Maybell and her two brothers, one older, one younger, were born while he was doing just that. But the kids were still young when, in the 1850s, John sold the farm, which had been pretty successful all along, and moved the family to the county seat of Carthage, Missouri. And once they were there, he used the money from the sale of the farm to buy up some land in the city, build a tavern, a stable, a blacksmith shop, and most notably a hotel. And through all of those combined ventures, he became pretty wealthy, actually very wealthy, and was considered one of the most, if not the most, prominent resident in Carthage. And as his daughter, Myra Maybell, grew up with a lot of advantages. She attended the Carthage Female Academy, where she learned everything from grammar and arithmetic to Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And her father, who actually, I think, worked with neighbors to have that school set up for her so that she could get an education. He also paid for her to learn the piano because, of course, no proper Southern girl could get by without learning to play the piano, or so this family believed, at least. And Myra Maybell wasn't oblivious to her status as a little rich girl either. She loved to show off, especially for guests at her parents' hotel. But she wasn't exactly the perfect little lady either, piano playing aside. She was a bit of a tomboy. She loved riding horses. She was quite skilled at it. She'd go for these long rides with her older brother, Bud, whom she really adored. And he taught her how to shoot a pistol and a rifle, too. According to Belle of the West, the true story of Belle Star by Margaret Rao, young Myra Maybell was known for galloping wildly down Carthage's main street, randomly popping off bullets from a pistol that she carried with her. People apparently thought this was kind of an endearing trait. They were amused and good-natured about it, maybe because Carthage was such a frontier town. It was kind of fun to see this well-bred girl riding her horse down Main Street shooting. Yeah, though you probably <laughs> couldn't do this in, a, in an established southern town. But she always carried her pistol with her, and later in life she even started referring to it as my baby. But we'll see kind of that affection for her weapon and talk about that more later on. One of her biggest faults was her quick temper. She was always ready to brawl if she got into a disagreement with someone. And we mean by brawl, we don't just mean get in an argument, we mean physically, physically fight start with fighting. girls or boys. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So when the Civil War started in 1861, Myra Maybell put that wild, quick-tempered side of hers to use. So just to give you a little bit of background on the situation at the time, Missouri was kind of a land divided. People who had settled in the northern part of the state supported the north, while those who had settled in the southern part of the state sympathized with the South and the Confederacy. The relations between Jasper County, which is where the Shirley family lived, and neighboring Kansas had also been pretty bad even in the years leading up to the war. Bands of raiders, who were known as Jayhawkers, who supported the Union, would come over and destroy Missouri communities. And meanwhile, rebel raiders known as bushwhackers would retaliate. We've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, but one of the most famous of these guerrilla rebel groups was led by William Clark Quantrill, who led his Confederate raiders across that Missouri-Kansas line. Yes, actually, Frank and Jesse James and Cole Younger, all of whom would, of course, later become famous outlaws, were part of this group. John Shirley was also a big supporter of Quantrill's raiders. And when the war broke out, Myra Maybell's brother Bud became one, working his way up to the rank of captain, according to an article by Richard D. Arnott in Wild West. Bud was actually so good at what he did, Union soldiers were always out to get him, but he always managed to evade them, too. And Myra Maybell, who was in her teens at that point, played a big part in that. For one thing, she was pretty. She was small. She had a nice complexion. She had long black hair and dark eyes. And she would flirt with Union soldiers to get information from them. So very Belle Boyd-esque, if you remember that episode about the Confederate spy. Yes. Not just the same in name alone. No, not just in name alone. She'd use her feminine wile as much as Belle Boyd did to get information. She'd learn things like the route of an enemy ammunition train or the location of a new Union camp or if there were specifically traps set for Bud and his gang. And according to Rao's work, many wives and sisters of raiders were doing this sort of thing. But in Myra Maybell's case, her spine became part of her bandit queen story later on. Yeah, because of her later career. Some writers, for example, suggest that Myra Maybell had her own band of guerrillas even, or that she was actually a part of Quantrill's group. But historical records don't really support either of those ideas. That's not to say that she didn't get her hands dirty, though. One account that Rao relates describes Myra Maybell being held captive by a Union major so that she wouldn't run off and warn her brother Bud that soldiers were on their way to ambush him. The major released her, though, making a big mistake. It kind of, again, reminded me of Belle Boyd, people underestimating yeah. her. Well, I think part of it was she was throwing a fit, too. The entire yeah. time he kept her kind of locked in a room, and she was, you know, yelling at him, throwing ready to a get tantrum, rid of and he was ready. He was like, okay, you can go now. But that was a mistake, because he released her 
kind of expecting that she wouldn't have time anyway to catch up and warn her brother, except he didn't realize how great she was on horseback. She leapt onto her horse, rode through the undergrowth, and uh, taking this little shortcut, she managed to reach her brother and warn him with really time to spare. But unfortunately, she couldn't always keep him safe. Bud and a companion were eating at the home of a Southern sympathizer in June of 1864 when the house was surrounded by federal militia. He tried to escape over a fence, but was shot and killed in the process. Some accounts have Myra Maybell heading off, looking for revenge after this, guns ablazing. But again, there are no records that really support that she did that. But this was sort of the start of bigger problems for the Shirley family. Um, after the war, the Shirley's business was ruined. John Shirley was so upset by the loss of his son that he relocated the family to Texas to a little settlement that was outside of Dallas. So in Texas, John Shirley went back to his original profession, farming again. And Myra Maybell went to a one-room school, but she was pretty bored because she was really ahead of where everyone else was academically. She was also one of the oldest people in class. Luckily, though, uh, or maybe unfortunately, she had plenty to distract her. Lots of local outlaws. Yes, outlaws like Frank and Jesse James and Cole Younger, who we mentioned earlier, who Myra Maybell used to associate with somewhat when she was in Missouri, and she got to know them there. They would sometimes visit her family's home in Texas to hide out there because many of the former Confederate guerrillas like them had become outlaws after the war, in part because the government wouldn't offer them amnesty. So they robbed banks and they held up trains, but because of their history together, the Shirley's agreed to help them out. And it's this continued association with people like James and Younger that just added to Myra Maybell's reputation. In fact, many people believe that Cole Younger and Myra Maybell had an affair and that they had an illegitimate daughter together. And this belief partially stems from something she later said herself. She said, when Younger and his gang were hiding out at her family's home, that was when she became reacquainted with the first man she ever loved. And people just assume that this meant Younger, but both Rouse and Arnett's work say that she was referring to the outlaw Jim Reed. So Myra Maybell had met Reed back in Missouri as well, where their families were friends. And he also hid out at the Shirley's Texas farm from time to time. And he and Myra Maybell rekindled their relationship and got married in 1866. Again, though, with uh, Myra Maybell or life, you have some real dramatized accounts that marriage even has been dramatized by some writers who've said that Belle's parents didn't approve and that the couple eloped with their band of desperados in attendance and that they were even married on horseback by one of the gang members. However, it's not quite as adventurous as that. There's an actual marriage license from November 1st, 1866, that shows Jim and Myra Maybell were married by the Reverend S.M. Williams, so not on horseback as far as we know. Yeah, so actually, at first, a fairly traditional marriage ceremony, and at first, a very traditional marriage. Reed tried his hand at farming and other jobs like saddle making in Texas, but by September 1868, when Myra Maybell gave birth to her daughter, Rosie Lee, who they called Pearl, they were living on the Reed homestead back in Missouri. Myra Maybell's younger brother, Ed, was shot and killed for stealing horses not long after this, so it's likely that she and Pearl made a visit to Texas. But other than that, there's not too much documentation of her life around this time. 
which, of course, has led to some rumors. Some biographies have filled this space where we don't really know what's going on about her with stories of her carousing in Dallas saloons. But Missouri neighbors actually refuted this and recalled her attending church with her daughter and her and the rest of the Reed family every week. So pretty standard stuff. Absolutely. Very as we said, traditional and not at all what you would expect of an outlaw. Jim Reed, on the other hand, though, he wasn't much for the farming, church-going, quiet life. He fell in with Tom Starr, a Cherokee who had a whiskey and cattle wrestling business after the war. And he took part in these shady activities until he killed a man to avenge his brother Scott's death. And so at this point, Jim Reed is a fugitive for both murder and the whiskey dealings. And so he takes Myra Maybell and Pearl and heads for California in 1869. So while they were there, they expanded their family a little bit. Myra Maybell gave birth to their son, James Edwin, whom they called Eddie. But by March 1871 or 1872, depending on the source, Reed got into trouble again for passing counterfeit money, and they had to flee again, this time back to Texas. When they were there, Myra Maybell's parents gave them part of their land to farm, you know, again, trying to set them up with this more stable life. But, of course, that couldn't really hold Reed's attention for very long. He kept getting mixed up with other outlaws, and he and his band were even accused of murdering a couple people, in addition to the man Reed had already murdered. So he and Bell ended up on the run again, this time escaping to Indian Territory, leaving the kids with her parents. And fortunately, we've talked about Indian Territory a little bit on earlier episodes and what a great hideout it could be for bandits like this. Yeah, and again, was in that Oklahoma sort of area. I know we've talked about that several times before, and people may be tired of us going over the whole Indian (laughs) Territory thing, but just to give you an idea of where it was. And when they went there, Reed's crimes didn't stop. It was almost as if that guerrilla life he had lived during the Civil War, he just couldn't let go of it. Kind of raging back. Yeah, it was too exciting for him, and he didn't want to give it up. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review (laughs) spells help me. (laughs) It seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini-platforms. I'm Scott Janowitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of everything from movies, music, and television to toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. We'll hear from the experts. Here's my review. Coldness and heartlessness are undermining today's suspense movies. The end. Don't go see it. Zero stars. As well as from all the Citizen Critics out there. So we loved our experience here because I read all the reviews beforehand and did not stay, eat dinner, or officially tour here. (laughs) Five stars! (laughs) Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So eventually, Bell started getting mixed up in some of his crimes, at least by way of rumors. For example, in late 1873, Reed and two others robbed the family of Watt Grayson, a judge in Indian Territory. And according to some rumors, Myra Maybell had helped in this dressed as a man. Grayson himself later said that this couldn't be true, though, because she was too petite, and he said that the guys who had attacked him were large. I mean, I guess it's one person's take on it, and if he was in the middle of this, maybe he could have been mistaken. Well, and he might not want to admit that a woman helped rob him. That is also perhaps an aspect of it, but eventually Myra Maybell did leave Jim Reed and move back in with her parents. She kind of got sick of 
that life of crime. And I, I could imagine she just got sick of being on the run all the time, too, and being separated from her kids. But it probably also had to do with the fact that Reed had taken up with another woman and she found out about it. Reed, meanwhile, kept on going. His gang kept robbing people, stagecoaches, stealing livestock. And by August 1874, there was a pretty considerable $7,000 bounty on his head. That August, he was traveling with a supposed friend named John T. Morris, who had actually, unbeknownst to him, been deputized to capture him. And when they stopped for a meal together on August 6th, Morris pulled a gun on him. Reed tried to escape and was killed. There's another aspect here to Myra Maybell's legend, though. Yeah, legend has it that Morris immediately contacted Myra Maybell and asked her to come and identify Jim Reed's corpse. I mean, he was probably thinking there's no love lost between this two. She knows about his affair. She's not happy with him. So, of course, she, she'll be happy to come and identify his body. But when she showed up, she took one look at the body and she said, quote, I never saw him in my life before. And then she turned to Morris and said, you will never get that bounty. So that's our dramatic uh, conclusion to this part one. Freeze frame. You can imagine Myra there looking at the body. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting perspective to take on the situation, right? I mean, she obviously was done with him. She was furious with him for having an affair with another woman. But at the same time, she still had this loyalty to him, to this outlaw. Didn't want his killer to make any money off of his stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, we will tell you a little bit more about how Morris did make out in the continuation of the story of Bellstar. And, of course, we'll go into the rest of her life. Well, she had later exploits. Her later exploits and, um, you know, talk a little bit more about how this reputation of hers came about and finally go into her one and only experience in jail. All right. So that is next time, though. So you'll have to stay tuned until then. In the meantime, if you want to suggest, I know you guys love these Old West characters so much. If you want to suggest more of your favorites to us, we could be inclined to keep covering this. So feel free to email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some notorious troublemakers throughout history, we have a great article on our website called 10 Public Enemies, and you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. 
Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.